0: begin. So tonight's or this morning, I don't know what time it is. This morning's outline is, uh, I've got a section on reading scripture in light of the great tradition. So kind of focusing on the Christian, early Christian approach to reading scripture. Uh, and then Tanetta has uh, a section about, well, how would you, how would you summarize your section?
1: Uh, I'm going to riff a little bit on the great traditions and how we think about them more personally.
0: Okay. And then, uh, there'll be a breakout session and some discussion questions there. And then if we have time, uh, we'll talk about, uh, how, uh, Jews, uh, some Jews over, uh, the centuries of millennia have read scripture. If we don't have time, then that might become just like a reading assignment or something. Uh, so, uh, Tanetta, would you pray for us? And then I'll, I'll, I'll get started.
1: Lord of life and freedom. Father, spirit, son, mother of us all, thank you uh, for welcoming us into the space. Thank you for meeting us here as we bring what is fragile in ourselves and in our thinking and in our doing. Thank you for meeting us right in the middle of those things. I pray that as we talk together, you would open our understanding that we would be formed I pray that you would um, help us to, to find spaces of deep connection to our own experiences and to our own need. I pray, Lord, that we would hear the good news as we talk, the challenge and beauty and joy of it. Thank you for this moment, this time, and the folks in this room here and now trying to do this. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank you. So I'll start off. Uh, was there any follow-up questions or discussion from last week's conversation on you know where the where the Bible came from where the idea of inerrancy came from anything like that I'll give you just a couple seconds to see if there's anything you wanted to bring up excellent I will take that as an a plus on my performance uh so let's talk about um how have folks who have read scripture over the Centuries. How have they read it? How did they decide uh, how they were going to yeah. understand this collection of books? And, you know, there's the old um, Mark Twain quote that uh, I would have spoken for less minutes if I had had more time to prepare. Uh, so I did not have as much time to prepare. So you don't have slides this week. I'm preaching tonight. Uh, so I'm going to do my best to not ramble and give you a like actual clear outline, uh, but I'm also going to pause just to make like uh, from time to time to make sure that I'm being clear. Uh, so, you know, if you've got a question, scribble it down and and please, 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 please uh, ask those questions. So you uh, have a group of folks who after uh, the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, uh, they are beginning to write about those experiences uh, and the implications of that. And it's important to remember about the New Testament, uh, that the New Testament is a group of Jewish uh, folks who encountered a Jewish Messiah who are figuring out the implications of their Jewish faith that because they believe that God has arrived uh, in the person of Jesus. And they begin writing about this. They begin creating communities uh, that are compelled around this vision that Jesus of Nazareth left them with the idea of God's kingdom, the will of God being coming to earth as it is in heaven. And that's where we begin to get the letters of Paul and, uh, Peter and John and Jude, the brother of Jesus. And that's where we begin to have people who are collecting the stories of, uh, Jesus and his ministry. And those are the gospels and all of these letters and writings and biographies began to be passed around. But the question I kind of want to ask you, this is a bit of a, well, no, never mind. I was going to say chicken and egg question, but I don't think it is. The question I want to ask you all is what came first? The gospel or the Bible. What came first? The gospel or the Bible? Anyone wanna take a whack at that question? Matt Wilmot says the Bible in the chat. Okay. Just making sure that things are working on my end. I saw Meg unmute, but I didn't hear anything. Did Meg actually say something? Okay. No. Okay. I, feel I
1: like everybody's putting stuff in the chat only.
0: Okay. Just, I had some technical issues where someone was talking last week and I didn't hear them. And it was, I was, I was, I was blushing. I was hugely embarrassed. So just making sure I'm not putting myself in the same situation. Yeah. Yeah. So we, you know, some back and forth between the gospel and Matt is bringing up the interesting point like, well, what Bible do you mean? Do you mean the Christian Bible? Uh, or do you mean the, the Jewish Bible? And that's, that is an excellent point because, uh, the first Christians, the, they did have a Bible and the Bible they were reading, uh, was the, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish Bible. In most cases, they were reading what we talked about last week, the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, and that, that is a fantastic point. And that's why we have a little bit of chicken in the egg mm-hmm. here. Um, but more was being written and composed. And that's where we've got this whole New Testament thing coming about. Um, so as the first Christians are going around and telling the Jesus story, they are expounding the scriptures. Jesus himself said this, uh, that he was revealing what was said about himself and the, the law and the prophets and the writings. Uh, and they are also handing something called the paradosis, paradosis, P-A-R-A-D-O-S-I-S. The paradosis is this technical term for the handing over of a tradition. So I've got uh, the traditions of my family. Of what do we do for the holidays and how do we sit for a meal? And um, we just started like chore list with Audrey and how we're going to do like allowance and all of that. And this is all part of the family traditions, the paradosis of my family. But there are also paradoses, uh for religions and holidays, all those sorts of things. So uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, Paul says, I hand it on to you, I par." Para- Paradosis to you, that which was given to me. These things of first importance, uh, and then he gives a summary of the "quote unquote" gospel that Jesus uh, came alive, taught, was crucified, was resurrected, and then appeared to many. Uh, and this phrase, this idea of the handing over of a tradition, uh, is used throughout the New Testament. It's used in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, Acts 16, Romans 6, Jude 1. Uh, It's quite all over the place. There's actually a really interesting thing that happens in English tradition or in English translation uh, where the word tradition is often assigned a negative uh, connotation. And so uh, when Jesus is putting the Pharisees on blast, he'll say something like, you follow the traditions of men. And then where Paul or others talk about handing over the tradition of the gospel, uh it's often put in terms of the teaching or the instruction, but underneath the translation it's it's that Greek word paradosis or paradidomai. Uh, it's the same word. So there is this tradition, this handing over instruction and teaching that's going on in the first century uh, of what is the gospel. Because, yes, there was the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scriptures, but there was no such thing as the New Testament yet. And regardless, there was no such thing as a codex yet. A codex uh, was a bound collection of materials. Uh, And so there was no printing press. It was a primarily oral culture uh, where only a, a certain percentage of people could read. And so what you're doing is passing on this oral tradition, the paradosis of your faith. So this has implications for how we understand how Scripture was read in those first centuries. You will you might, you know, if you browse around on the conservative Christian internet today, uh, you might read these kind of high, hyperbole statements, like, uh, you can't have a vibrant faith without reading the bible daily or if you want to grow in your relationship with god then you must have a a a daily reading uh, discipline of scripture well that's throwing the first 14 15 16 centuries of christians under the bus who one didn't have access to these beautifully leather bound bibles that we've got today uh, and two primarily experienced the passing on of their faith, not of the handing over of a book, but rather of the passing on of an oral tradition, the paradosis, the first principles, these things that were passed on uh, from believer to believer, generation to generation. Okay, so why do I bring this all up? This has implications for how we understand how to build our faith. Uh, so what I'm going to talk through next comes from uh, a gentleman named Brad Jerzak. Uh, Bradley Jerzak um, is a professor up in uh, British Columbia, Canada, and he's got a gr- wonderful series of books called A More Christlike" and then Blank. It's a, it's a trilogy. So A More Christ-like God, More Christ-like Way, and then what I'm quoting from this morning is A More Christ-like uh, Word, which is about Scripture. And this is what Jerzak argues. Jerzak argues that reading scripture well, if you want to read the Bible well, it requires fundamental theological presuppositions. In other words, commitments that we hold prior to picking up the Bible and reading it. Now, this may sound counter to what you may have heard in churches before that our theology, what we believe about God, derives out of Scripture. We don't want to read into Scripture. Well, I've got an idea about God, and so I'm going to read into Scripture. No, 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 we've been taught, probably, at least I was, that I to take the, the Bible, and I read it with a pure, holy mind, and out of that Bible, I will get my ideas about God from it. But that's not what the first Christians did. Uh, so there was a Jewish philosopher named uh, Philo or Philo, depends on who you ask. Uh, and he's a, a contemporary of Jesus, uh, but he was over uh, in, uh, in the, the Greco-Roman culture. But he was a Jewish philosopher, and he's writing about God. And Philo reasons that if Yahweh is truly God, he's trying to make a case uh, to the Greco-Roman religions that Yahweh was the one true God uh, of the world and that there was only one God. He's making a case for monotheism. If Yahweh is truly God, the ultimate good, then Phila argues the brutal descriptions of Yahweh must be anthropomorphic projections. so uh Tanetta, you were an English teacher. uh what's an anthropomorphism? You care to jump in and explain <laughs> uh,
1: it is uh, essentially putting God like ch- our human characteristics on God. so a great example of that uh, is in Genesis, the two um the two accounts of creation in Genesis, Genesis one and Genesis two, are written, they come out of different schools, just to, of like writers, scribal schools. Uh, and if you ever go back to Genesis two, which I hope you will, um, you will notice that the God portrayed in Genesis two is much more like a human being. So he God walks through the garden. You know, there's there's a much more sense that, oh, this is like a human being. And so th- that school tended to, um, to uh, as Anthony is saying, project anthropomorphisms onto God.
0: Yeah, yep, yep. Taking human qualities, applying it to something. So Philo says, if Yahweh is truly God, the ultimate good, then the brutal descriptions of Yahweh must be anthropomorphic projections, that is, attributing human attributes and actions to God. So Philo said... We must, therefore, read those passages allegorically, because to read them literally would be unworthy of God. So that was Philo, Jewish philosopher, same era as Jesus. So the early church fathers and mothers, so these are the folks who are writing after the composition of the New Testament. New Testament was being written in the first century uh, after the time of Jesus every scholar believes that it was closed and finished uh by the end of the first century, so ninety nine one hundred a d so then you you still have more things being written uh, and this is the study of patristics uh so what's often called the church fathers, however, that's a bit of a misnomer because there are also women uh who are writing and thinking and making theological contributions at the time as well. so the church fathers and mothers, they take these same assumptions, Philo's assumptions about God being the ultimate form of good into their reading of the Bible. They were committed to reading scriptures under the assumption that God is good and that all God does is goodness. So here's another big quote from Brad Jerzak. Jerzak says, Knowing this up front, the great fathers and mothers of the church could then read the scriptures and watch for Christ to be revealed. And where God appears to be unchristlike therefore the author of hatred or darkness or death, they are preconditioned, these second, third century Christians, to read those portions as allegory. They resist literalism wherever it would paint God is not good or redefine good as something that's actually evil. Instead, they insist that God is christ-like, and in God there is no unchristlikeness at all. Said another way, the first Christians committed themselves fully to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and his revolu- revelation of Triune love. Then they would open the scriptures. This theological pre-commitment dramatically impacted how they read and translated the Bible and it can do the same for us today. So to summarize this little section, uh, you've got the gospel, the the proclamation that Jesus is God in the flesh, come to reboot creation, to launch the, the kingdom project in and through human beings, the church. Uh, the proclamation that Jesus was God in the flesh, all of the things that Jesus says about himself in the book of John, I only do what I see the father do. And I only say what I see the father say, say what I see the father saying. You have that proclamation that is then paradidomide, a paradosis given over to the generation after generation of Christians. And that tradition, the great tradition is then the lens through which the first Christians understand scripture. All right. So let's pause there and see what kind of questions, ideas, ruminations this brings up for you.
2: i have just a general, like, that's wild reaction of, you know, the idea that the point, which which I think this sort of answers uh, a question that I, I came into the class with of like, you know, how do we read Joshua? And how do we read all the times that God seems pretty not great. Um, So I I think this is interesting that it sort of used to be the tradition to assume that God is great and anything else is like humans. Um, And I'm I'm interested, this may be a, a future topic that will be discussed, of like when that shifted and when we started being like, no, no, this is the words on the page are... Uh, what we're going with
0: yeah yeah
1: I was thinking that kind of in my upbringing whatnot um, a lot of an idea that gets passed around a lot is like that we don't understand as humans what God would consider good and I could see that as like pushback of this viewpoint like we choose what we think is good in quotes and then and but we might be misunderstanding God
0: Actually, Meredith's thinking was aligned with my question. I wonder how did they prevent themselves from kind of crafting this God in their head that was good according to what they thought instead of instead of kind of like reading scripture to take away parameters of God according to what happened in scripture, if that makes sense. Uh McKenzie in the chat says, I love this idea. My question is, if not from the Bible, and this is all getting at same same of the same things, where does that presupposition that God is ultimately and only good come from? Yep. 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 So I've got a response. Um I'm gonna let Matt ask his question too. Oh,
3: um, I just had a comment if you wanted to uh respond first.
0: Okay, do you want to hold on to your comment? Yeah. Okay. So this is my response to that. I think Uh, And I'll respond for me, okay? So the tradition I grew up in read the Bible very flatly. So the revelation of God that we got in, let's take Meg's example, Joshua, is equal to the revelation of God that we get in, say, the book of John. And I was taught the idea that uh, if you see contradiction in these two viewpoints of God— Well, then, the problem is you, not the Bible. What I've come to see is that one, and this gets into, if we have time, the idea of how the Jews read Scripture. The Bible is not a flat, equally uh, inspired document. Now, I know I'm 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 treading on uh, some thin theological ice here, maybe for some of you, but within just the Hebrew Scriptures you see theological argument and um trajectory the example if if you've been in a class with me before you've heard me use this example but I'll repeat it the example i think of is the instructions that the god character gives to elijah and jeroboam to slaughter the house of ahab so ahab uh, and Jezebel, they were, uh, you know, uh, a fling uh, uh, rulers of Israel. Uh, Elijah is the one who calls down fire and slaughters the prophets of Baal. Baal. And then uh, Judah's king, Jeroboam, goes and slaughters all of Ahab's descendants of the house. Okay. Then you pick up the book of Hosea, which is written later uh, than the king's stories. And Hosea says, um, hey, that whole slaughtering of Ahab's house. and this speaking for God, uh, yeah, that shouldn't have happened. So within the Hebrew scriptures, you have Elijah speaking for God, go and slaughter Ahab's house. And then Hosea speaking for God, I am not the kind of God who slaughters households. So you have this trajectory of what God is like. Um, You see throughout the Hebrew scripture, this idea of God hating violence and loving uh, kindness Uh, You see this in the revelation of God in in the book of Exodus of uh, behold, my name uh, uh, shows mercy to a thousand generations, all these kinds of things. Uh, But then you have the prophets who come along and say, hey, you know how this is in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah says, uh, you instituted the sacrificial system, uh, but it never entered my mind to give that to you. So the prophets are critiquing the earlier tradition. Uh, And saying, hey, those things that you thought God was like, God is actually like this. So that's within just the Hebrew scripture. Then you come to the New Testament and what the the first Christians were claiming about Jesus, that Jesus was God in the flesh. And the author of the book of Hebrews, uh, which I like to say we don't know who the author is, but she was brilliant. The author of the book of Hebrews says, in prior times, the prophets spoke, you know, prophecies of old. But then Jesus came and was the perfect image and representation of God. So the author of the book of Hebrews makes this wild claim that if we take seriously that Jesus is God, then we must prioritize Jesus's claims above the claims of what came before. So no longer this flat hierarchy, of every verse of scripture must be equally uh, inspired and truthful about God, we take, Christians took the claims about Jesus as priority over other claims that made God out to be violent, uh, vengeful, etc. So to McKinsey's question, if not from the Bible, where? You've got a combination of things. One, of human conscience and You know, philosophical thinking, thinking through the implications of what would a perfectly good being be like, paired with the physical revelation of Jesus of Nazareth saying, uh, you know, that God is he is God in the flesh. He does only what he sees the Father saying and doing. Uh, and then taking those claims seriously back onto how we read prior claims about God. Tanada, you wanna you wanna add anything to what I just said?
1: Yeah. Um, what came up for me to kind of a very, very practical part of that question, um, is around the ways in which communities are involved at every level in the putting together the translation. I mean, every level communities are involved. And I think understanding both the tradition and the Bible itself has to be rooted in, in reading and engaging, uh, with and reading from communities of difference. So I think that we read an individualist lens on a lot of this. Like, what happens if I have presuppositions and then they take me, you know, in this direction? But I think if you're reading in communities of difference, you're much more and and as Anthony said, in that tradition that is uh, you know, sees Jesus as the supreme lens for interpretation. I think you're much less likely uh, to do that. I, I also would say, I think historically, and particularly in certain parts of Christianity, there's been essentially a high view of scripture, but a low view of human beings with things like total depravity. But if we assume we're created in the image of God and are able to read with one another, again, I think it's less likely that those presuppositions take us off in a direction. I think historically Christians haven't done this well. We read individually often in the west and we often read with people just like us and so those presuppositions take us to really problematic places sometimes
0: i think there's also we have built into us this well this comes from the jeremiah verse we looked at last week the the human heart is uh endlessly wicked kind of thing um so let me show you give you an example i'm going to share my screen for a second this is the national association of evangelical statements on capital punishment. And they say something like this, as evangelicals, we believe that moral revulsion or distaste for the death penalty is not a sufficient reason to oppose it. So there's this common tact, particularly within American evangelicalism, that says, hey, just because your conscience uh, says that something is bad, well, your conscience should maybe be doubted. And That kind of thinking is what, uh, you know, historically led to major abuses and horrifying crimes against humanity because scripture was okay with it. Uh, Whereas uh, the early church and the and our Jewish brothers and sisters and friends, uh, they were very open to the idea that uh, you know if a community has a conscience that is screaming about some sort of abuse in the name of scripture, maybe we should pay attention to that. Um, Matt, what was your comment?
3: Yeah. um, I just wanted to preface the comment by saying that I always sound like I know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) uh, But I've been listening to um, a podcast that I really love and and highly recommend called the Bema Discipleship uh, Podcast there's about seven seasons of these two followers of Jesus unpacking the Hebrew Bible. And, uh, the, one of them is, uh, this guy, Marty Solomon, who is, um, a little bit of an iconoclast, but also really deep in the, in the, the study. And he points out that, um, in the Hebrew Bible, um, most frequently or, or quite frequently when God is wrathful, um, it's for one of two reasons. It's either, um, in, Response to the um, sort of righteous cry of the people of Israel, or it's against the unrighteousness of the people of Israel. And he makes a case that um, uh, you can look through uh, the Old Testament, which I've not read all the way through. But he makes a case that you can look through it, and you can you can see that um, that God is that 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 the message of the text appears to be that God is. Um, kind of, uh, infinitely patient with those who are trying, but that like the, the wrath comes, um, from, uh, the, um, like the state of flouting, like not letting God in. And when you look at that in the context in the, that the overarching metaphor of, of Genesis is the establishment of a marriage covenant. It's almost like God is like this obsessive like the metaphor is God is kind of an obsessive boyfriend that like, if you're, you know, if you're not calling, God is like, why aren't you calling? Why aren't you there? And not in a way that I find quite beautiful because it's not like God is dangerous and God is looking to lash out, but it's like, God wants us on the line so much that God is kind of fierce and almost kind of desperate to have us on the line. Um, Because what follows from that is teaching and leading, and kindness, and love, and clarity along the way, um, and like that's not necessarily the truth, but that's sort of the metaphor that we're invited to inhabit, right? Is is sort of that sort of God?
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, Bema or Bema, BEMA podcast is is excellent stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, one more point I want to make. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. go ahead, Taneta.
1: I just want to pull something out of what you said that I, I don't know we'll get back to, and I don't want to get lost. Okay. Um, and that's the importance of remembering that uh, scripture scriptures primarily came orally. So they were both spoken first and heard, like received through hearing. And the way in which that shapes how you interact with scripture is very different from when you have a manuscript in front of you, and you are dissecting it. Uh, And so I just want to pull that out because it is a really, and and there are cultures today that still like, receive scripture more orally. And it allows, I think, for more at times flexibility. So I just want to also note that that as they're wrestling with great themes, the fact that they're hearing it matters a lot versus like word for word for word.
0: Yeah, that's good. Um, Let's see. i one more, two more things. So there's this tradition, particularly in the Reformed Calvinist tradition, that is really strong about our ability to know what a loving or kind action is. Uh, and, and Calvin uh, Calvin was big on this, but and Calvin has a lot to think for Augustine, of if God decrees that some people are predestined for eternal hell, and damnation, that is an act of love. Now, we may not perceive that as much as human beings, but that's our fault, not God's. This I've got a big philosophical problems with this, um, where I do believe that humans have some ability, not a perfect ability, but some ability, to be able to identify what loving or kind actions are. And if we take away, if we say that, no, humans actually aren't able to do that, um, then any sort of search for truth becomes impossible. And if we are basically able, theologically, to make words like love, kindness, and justice into what I would say nonsense, well, God can eternally torture someone, uh, and that is a loving and kind and just thing to do. Uh, for a lifetime's worth of fault, Um, then I, you know, that's where I throw my hands up in the air and say, well, then what is the point of worshiping a kind of God like that? Uh, I, I do believe in some amount of, uh, human ability to name what loving kind and good actions are. And I think scripture says that we can do that as well. When scripture makes claims that God is love and that love is patient, kind, uh, all of those sorts of things, 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I don't think, I don't think scripture then goes back and says, but you don't actually know what those words mean. So, you know, never mind. that that's my quick little soapbox about that. I've got, I've got one more quick little thing and then, uh, my part is done for the day. So, uh, let's do it. And then I'm going to take a drink. So there's this whole idea of having theological commitments, theological presuppositions prior to our reading of scripture. Where do we get those theological commitments from? Um, Do we just, you know, pull them out of the back of our whatever, (laughs) or uh, do we just find the things that make us comfy and cozy? Uh, Where did these theological commitments come from? Uh, So uh, four points to make here. Uh, There is the idea of Catholic consensus. Now, Catholic, uh, we don't mean Roman Catholicism, uh, which is, uh, you know, particularly the form of Christianity that came out of uh, Rome. By Catholic, uh, we mean the word universal. What has been universally believed? And uh, this idea of Catholic consensus uh, was popularized by a gentleman named Vincent of Lorenz uh, in the 400s. And Vincent of Lorenz defined consensus as that was believed by everywhere always, and by all. So what was believed by most Christians in most times and most places. Now, this does two things. It both limits what that list of things is. So, for example, the subjugation of females uh, does not fit that definition, uh, that women are uh, eternally subordinate to men, the whole idea of complementarianism, all of that. That does not fit the definition of Catholic consensus. That was not believed by everywhere at all times and all places. Um, And uh, it also limits things like it is hard to call yourself a, a definitional or creedal Christian while rejecting something like the Trinity, because the Trinity has been believed by most Christians in most times in most places. So it limits, but it also opens possibilities when you realize The actually limited amount of things that have been believed by most Christians, most times, most places, that opens lots of possibilities of what can be believed. You can believe quite a few things and still be well within orthodoxy. So that's point number one I want to make is this idea of Catholic consensus. Two, um, there's the idea of, and I'm going to spit some Latin at you this morning, ad fontes apostolorum. So ad fontes means back to the sources, and apostolorum, back to the sources, meaning specifically the apostles. Uh, so what were the first century writers? Uh, what did they have consensus around? Uh, so you have the idea of consensus, and then you limit that even further by what was, what was the first century church centered around? Uh, and that takes the, the study of the New Testament to get a grasp on. So that's number two, consensus ad fontes apostolorum, back to the apostolic sources, and number three uh, is the idea of semper reformandum that we are always reforming, semper like simplify, you know, always faithful, semper reformandum, always reforming that our faith and our tradition is not cryogenics. It is not frozen in time and therefore must never, ever change. So Lorenz, this person who popularized uh, the idea of uh, the consensus being everywhere, always, and by all, he was also somebody who coined the phrase, the improvement of our religion. So Lorenz said uh, that we have to look into the trajectories of Holy Scripture. Scripture is not the last word of God. It is pointing us in the direction where God wants us to go. And we have to prosecute or look into those trajectories. So Catholicity, that idea of consensus, uh, has the idea of catharsis reform and chrysalis, the growth of our doctrine. Uh, so yes, we look for consensus and the great tradition and all of that. Uh, and that is not a stopping point, but a starting point. Now, this is actually affirmed by the—now I'm going to change terms—the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they have this document uh, about the Word of God, God from 1965. And they say, There is a growth in the understanding of the realities and the words which have been handed down. This is the Catholic saying that? There's a growth in our understanding of the words which have been handing down. And this happens through the contemplation and study made by believers who treasure these things in their hearts through a penetrating understanding of spiritual realities, which they experience. So in other words, uh, the Catholics in 1965, the Roman Catholics in 1965 said, um, yes, there's the tradition, the great tradition, the idea of consensus, all of that. And our understanding grows. It moves forward in time. So just because something was believed five, six, seven, a thousand years ago, doesn't mean that that's where it has to stick forever. So to summarize, and then I'm going to say one more thing, Uh, we begin by having some theological presuppositions, commitments we hold prior to our reading. We get those presuppositions from an understanding of what the consensus has been. And yes, yes, that consensus does find some of its origin in the thing that we call the Bible, but also... Remember, the Bible came after the experiences of the Jews. The Bible came after the experiences of the first Christians. They handed down their traditions, and that is how the Bible got put together, because some things were left out uh, because they already had a tradition in place. Uh, And then that, that consensus, those theological presuppositions, don't give us permission to stay stuck in time forever, but rather give us a starting point by which to Figure out our trajectories towards a more loving, just, verdant world. Okay, my one last point. Uh, It's been pointed out that well, if we are limiting our, and this is going to transition into what Tanetta has to say, I think. It's been pointed out that if we're limiting our, you know, theological ideas and our understanding of Scripture to the Great Tradition, aren't we just limiting it then to? A bunch of you know white europeans in in Rome or Italy uh, who were making pronouncements uh, in line with the Roman Empire and Constantine. Um, to which I need to to you know basically say, hold up. The great tradition, those early church fathers and mothers, um, were not white European men. The great tradition was formed by, remember, first century. Primarily Jews who are trying to reframe and reunderstand their Jewish heritage, so you're talking brown middle Eastern people um primarily women uh so Rodney Stark, in his uh magisterial book on the origins of Christianity and how it took over the Roman Empire um does j- just these wild um sociological studies and and points out that uh, by the second and third centuries, Christian Christianity was about two thirds women and majority either slaves or prior slaves. Um, and three, so many of our great creeds and uh, apostolic father and mother writings came from Africa. They came from uh, both, uh, Sub-Saharan and Saharan Africa, uh, where so much early Christian work was being done. Uh, so in the email that I'll send out tomorrow or today after our class, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send out four books uh, about um, how the great tradition was formed um, and how women, slaves, Africans, Uh, including like Asians were the great formers of the great tradition. And that if we limit it to only some white European men in the five hundreds, then we are, we are forgetting the very origins of our faith. All right. I'm done. I did my thing. Further feedback, repercussions, questions before we hand it over. All right. Pastor Tanetta.
1: All right. I'm feeling like, First of all, I was surprised nobody had feedback right there. <laughs> but uh, I'm feeling like we need like a little bit of a three-minute break, a little just like move. Um, so I'm going to just put on a song in a second, and it's kind of the do what you need to do, stretch your body, use the bathroom, whatever. And when the song's over, I'll just kind of ask, like, since most people are not on screen, if we could just raise our hands so I could just get a sense of it. Like, how many people are skated back into the room by, by the point the song ends? All right, so let's take three minutes. When the song ends, we'll come back together. All right. Okay. Can I get just a show of hands to a raised hand on how many folks are back? Okay, I see people. Yay. Okay. The artist of that song is Porter's Gate. I think they're a collective. Present. Okay, I think we're basically that. So, uh, what I, you can take your hand down whenever you're ready. Thank you so much. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, so, essentially, what I want to do is maybe talk for maybe 15 minutes, hopefully, not even that. We'll see. And then um, have some time in breakout rooms to kind of process uh, some of what was discussed. Around some some questions I put together, and also just anything that came up with uh, what Anthony said as well. Um, so I'm going to share my screen really quickly. Okay. So, um, can you see this? Let's see. Okay. All right. So the first thing I wanted to say was just again kind of a summary of how I heard what Pastor Anthony had had to say. Um, now, this is just a part of it. There was, there was a lot more nuance to this. But essentially, this idea that the early church read the scriptures in conversation with the great tradition, um, which obviously there's a lot of framing there that was excellent. Um, the creeds, the confessions, the summaries of the gospel. There's a lens, there are presuppositions that uh, were brought, such as love and the goodness of God. The great tradition came first. And then if you want to read scripture well, you need to know the tradition well first uh, is is a part of what Pastor Anthony, I think, was getting at. So I'll note that when I was thinking about kind of these main ideas, what came up for me was a desire to kind of do a little bit of riffing on them from a different direction. Um, Uh, what came up in me was a lot about what does it mean to talk about the great tradition, capital G, capital T, but also what does it mean to talk about the great tradition, lowercase g, lowercase t. Uh, And I mentioned uh, in the first session that for me, one of the things that often informs how I think about these conversations is the ways in which people who have been colonized need to find their way back to uh, readings of scripture that are not harmful. So I'll, I'll name that that is often my lens. Um, so again, the great tradition, the idea that presuppositions, that we bring extra biblical tools, values, methods, ways of interacting with the text that shape how we read the, the scriptures. And that most of the time, I think that most of the time when we talk about these, the truth is that we tend to talk about them as things we need to take off or take down. Uh, if that makes any sense. I'm going to stop this for a second. So I think that when we talk about what we bring, um, our presuppositions, we are often talking about what we need to put down. And we're going to do, we're going to devote a whole session to this next week. Um, essentially, like, what are our lenses? But we usually talk about the lenses we need to take off versus the traditions from which we come that actually help us read scripture well, and that we need to maintain. All right. So My basic idea here is that culture connects us to our great traditions. Um, So about two years ago, I had the joy of designing a a study based on the book of Jonah um, about racism, justice, reconciliation, but all of that through the lens of the book of Jonah. And one of the things I noticed first is that there's a moment in the book of Jonah Uh, in chapter one, I'll put this up, uh, in a second when Jonah, you know, he's received this call and he's fleeing what God has told him to do. He gets on a boat or ship. There's a terrible storm. Um, and he has this interaction with these sailors who want to know who he is. So let me put that back up. And here is what that text reads. They said to him, these sailors, these people on the ship, tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? I am a Hebrew, Jonah replied. I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And what I want to pull out here is that for many of us being able to name, I am a Hebrew, and taking that as something that does shape how we how we worship and how we even relate to scripture is really really important. And I think that that lens um, of culture actually holds our lenses of culture actually hold um, a great tradition that we need to recapture in many cases in order to read scripture well. Now, my caveat here is that culture is not, culture also needs transformation, right? Cultures are not all great. They are not all sunshine and roses. So uh, we also have to keep that in mind. But many of us need to bring presuppositions from our culture in order for all of us to understand the fullness of scripture in a new in a new way. Here's what uh, one scholar writes, culture is part of our being before God. And we follow Jesus in each of our different cultures. And again, how does that affect how we think about the great traditions from which we come? Uh, some of you may have read this book by Lisa Sharon Harper called The Very Good Gospel. And I think it's worth, she, I mean, there are so many definitions of ethnicity and culture, but I think it's worth visiting these two just as a reminder today as we talk about these ideas. So these are her definitions from the very good gospel. These are the the definitions she uses when she's teaching about scripture uh, and when she's teaching about justice. So she writes, ethnicity is biblical. Ethnicity is created by God as people groups move together through space and time. Ethnicity is dynamic and developed over long periods of time. It is not about power. It is about group identity, heritage, language, place, and common group experience over time. Ethnicity is a difference between African-American, Caribbean, British, African, Irish, Afri- Irish-American, Korean, Korean-American, English, Anglo-American, Polish, Polish-American, and so forth. Ethnicity is God's very good intention for humanity. Ethnicity is God's very good. Oh, that's why, sorry, I didn't realize I wrote that twice. And then she here's how she defines culture. Culture is implicit in scripture, but the word itself is never used. Culture is a sociological and anthropological term that refers to the beliefs, norms, which rituals, arts, and worldviews of particular people, groups, in a particular place, at a particular time. Culture is fluid. So again, I'm suggesting that our cultures can help us discover great traditions, little g, little t, that will help us read scripture um, more fully. And then I just want to give two examples of this before we have some discussion. So one is uh the, the these are just two examples that I think are, you know, they they come, they came to mind for me. So one is comes out of the indigenous tradition, great tradition, of what Randy Woodley calls the Harmony Way. And the second is an islander vision. So let's start with the first one. Great tradition, little G, little T. Um, actually, before I, I re read, read what he's written. So the Harmony Way is essentially this uh. In many indigenous cultures, you can find this way in which uh, the world is conceived as a whole. The world is interrelated and interconnected, and then things happen that break that unity, that break that wholeness. Um, and in Randy Woodley's r- research, he found that essentially the harmony way has these extreme parallels to what is identified in Hebrew scripture. Often in English, it, it's translated peace. But it's really like well-being. It's this deep interconnected wholeness that's communal. Um, But he found that the Harmony Way was really similar in indigenous cultures to the concept of shalom or peace that you find in the Hebrew Bible. And essentially that great tradition of the Harmony Way actually sharpened for the folks in his own community, their sense of what it meant to practice shalom, which is a deeply biblical concept. So here's what he writes. In my own relationships with other indigenes, I have heard similar testimonies of a type of harmony way of living and understanding life. From Zulu, Inca, Maasai, Sami, Maori, uh, Inuit, Australian Aboriginal and Hawaiian peoples. I don't think it is an understatement to say that the ancient Semitic Shalom construct, construct or what we can broadly refer to as a harmony way is the creator's original instruction for the way in which all society should be ordered and for all life on this planet should be lived. The universality of shalom is what Old Testament style. So this is the connection that he makes. It, essentially, the harmony way is shalom. It's the central vision of world history, this living in harmony and security towards joy, towards the joy and well-being of every creature. I won't read all of that, but essentially it's about connectedness. And the great tradition from which he comes informs that. The second example, these are very random examples I wanna give is just from island uh, reading. So think about uh, the island, the Polynesian islands that are spread over vast, um, you know, they're they're very widespread, they're very spread out uh, in the ocean. So one is the concept that comes out of their great tradition of Moana. And Moana means ocean, essentially. I'm sure it probably has more nuance than that, but for our purposes, ocean. And this is what a writer from an amazing essay called Reading Islandly says. The depth of Moana resists the common understanding that anything is fathomable. Moana has been used in the islander conception of God and interpretation of biblical texts. God is like Moana, deep and unfathomable, resourceful and rich, a source of life and origin, home and harmony, and a final resting place. And then the second, and there are so many that come out of this vision, this great tradition, but is the idea of dispersion. Because often the islands are uh, in that part of the world, are, they're deeply spread out. But because of that geographic distance, because of that dispersion, the, like if you read islanders who are, who are interpreting uh, scripture, they are able to more sharply see God's scattering is good. So here's, here's an example of that, the Tower of Babel. So uh, if you've read the story of the Tower of Babel, often it gets read as fundamentally about the sin of pride that then God punishes by scattering people all over the world. A better reading of that, and, and many scholars would agree with that, is that the scattering that happens is actually good. That God, there's always this rhythm in scripture of scattering and gathering. And so it cannot, it should not be read exclusively as this punishment like we need to see scattering into different languages and different ethnicities and all of that as a good as a part of god's good creation and because of the way island islanders are situated they're able from their great tradition to really more sharply see that reality in scripture um so that's mostly what i have so i just want to go back to anthony's main point and just add that final point which i have in italics which is that by extension um, to the, the great tradition, needing to know the great tradition well. We all have great traditions that are important to helping us read well, and we need to engage those. Now, I'll say one final thing uh, before I send this off to discuss, or maybe take general questions to make sure everybody's tracking. Um, but I, I, I realized as I was thinking this through that, I think for some people who might hear this, it is deeply life-giving. It is good news. And I think that for other people who may hear this, it is a real challenge. Like if you are disconnected from your great tradition, either because like for many people of color that that has been taken away, has been stolen, you've been removed from it. Or if you are considered white, then you don't actually know what that great tradition ever was because you've been disconnected. Like whiteness has paper over all the differences that are are present um, on the continent of Europe. Uh, so I want to acknowledge that and even as we go into breakout rooms, there might be some other things that come up around, like I don't actually know what that tradition is and what does that mean for me? Uh, so to me, when I think about it, I think about this part of this as both for some of us, many of us a work, I think of it as, you know, bringing up grief, but also think, I think of it as calling us to necessary work uh, so that we know how to situate, situate ourselves when we're reading the biblical text in really positive and helpful ways. Um, Okay, I'm gonna put up, let me take this down so I can make sure everybody's tracking and then I'll go back and just have some questions and Did that make sense? So Matt says, yes, I find the distinction between shalom, harmony and empire extremely clarifying and useful. Yeah, And I'll note that there's a whole field of post-colonial theology that is also doing a really good job of thinking about like, like Anthony said, if in the 500s, you know, really, I mean, even a little bit like pre-Christianity pre, pre um, Christianity identifying with the Roman empire, if, if a lot of the great tradition, capital G, capital T, was formed in that period, like in general, we have to think about like what came before so much of our imperial understandings of Christianity, and how does that help us read the Bible more fully and more clearly?
0: I mean, my favorite example of that is like, oh, I can't believe you practice yoga or meditation. That comes from the Eastern religions. I'm like, don't do you do you not know where Israel is? <laughs> do you not do you not know where Christianity came from? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Does anybody have, I'm going to give us some kind of instructions to go into breakout rooms, but are we tracking anything else, anything initially come up with in you before we go? Or any questions that might be helpful for the whole group? I have one. Yeah.
2: Uh, Tonight, you mentioned the, and I'm going to get this wrong, so help me through on this, because I already know my words are not great this morning. But when you mentioned, for those of us who would be considered white, that a lot of the European those stories have been lost is there do you have any ideas about finding those so like for instance my family is irish so we have some of those like oh we're from ireland and we like like we know where we're from quote unquote but we don't have a whole lot of those like and yet i know there's stories of like the fae and things like like things that are like classically irish stories but i wouldn't know where to look to try to like regain part of that do you have any suggestions or any like places that that might um is there or maybe just like how you started looking that direction yourself or anything like that
1: yeah no I mean I think the answer to that for me the answer to that is and I'm very curious what Anthony would say about this is that I um I think some of the best stuff around this is when people who are considered white like I think you've got to find people in people who are doing that work that are white. Cause I, I don't know how to do that. Does that make sense? Like in, in general, I think when we're thinking about all these things, I think creating a collection of collections, a terrible term, uh, but a group of people who can mentor you and who have done that well, that are white is like really critical. Um, and I know there are some people writing, but I think that that's the best piece of advice. I mean, I think for me, I, I would love to say that I've woken up to this, you know, this has like been a a huge part of my Christian experience. It hasn't, it's been, it's come up for me when I've interacted with, um, you know, uh, in settings where people who, black people who deeply identify as Christian, instead of saying, amen, they're saying, Ashe. and I'm like, wait a minute, where, why, how, how, tell me more about that. Um, and I'm one of those people who feels grief because I feel a little bit hopeless that I can ever get back to anything connected to where I am from West Africa. so I don't, and how do I not appropriate? So I don't think this is neat stuff. Let me just be real, real clear. But I think it's like necessary stuff. Uh, It's necessary work that will probably take decades for us to do well. Uh, Anthony, do you want to say something about that? And then I'm going to just read out Ariana's comment.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll try to be quick. Okay, I'm going to point you to Islam. This, this is the weirdest thing I'm ever going to say. Uh, so Islam has the five pillars of faith. Um, so you've got profession of faith, prayer, alms, fasting, and pilgrimage. This is a wonderful pathway towards understanding heritage. So profession of faith, this is going to be like the knowledge, like research stuff, like go ask a librarian What's a good history of Ireland to read? In my case, like me and Emily, uh, we come from like Slavic European culture, so reading up on the like history, culture of uh, like the Czechoslovakia, things like that. So, what what did they believe? What have they been about? Uh, prayer? What have been? What were the religions uh, of my culture or geography prior to being colonized? Uh, so, in yeah, in the case of Ireland, like go do some research on the Celts and Celtic uh, mysticism, uh, you know, prior to St. Patrick and all of that. Um, Alms. Um, What struggles did uh, my geography have both today and in the past? Uh, So what is, you know, what is the Slavic people dealing with today? What are the ways that they struggled now? What are the ways that they struggled uh, in history? Have an understanding of that. pilgrimage you know obviously this comes from a place of privilege but if at all possible can you actually go be in the space from which your ancestors came uh and then fasting uh in what ways have i taken on white culture um and did i forsake the culture from which i actually came and what ways can i fast from my whiteness uh, in order to maybe put on a practice uh, from my geography or culture that came before me. So that's my quick answer.
2: Can I just say thank you to both of you and that both your answers is amazing. and gives me tons of direction. So I really appreciate it.
0: Cheers. Yeah.
1: And then Ariana said, how do you prioritize what traditions to study versus others geographically? Do you feel that there is a bias towards studying or being open to certain regions of the world versus other how do you navigate balancing other traditions when uh, we may not have ethnic groups? Um, so the second part of that question is that I do think, the reason I, I think that this is even important to talk about is because I think you get to a fuller understanding of scripture, there's a lot you're gonna miss if you're not reading with other people that are that are across uh, perspectives of difference. So when you say, how do you balance navigating other traditions when you may not have ethnic groups? I think a lot of that, the starting point for a lot of that is reading it, I think in communities, um, of, of difference. Like that's, that's a, that's a practical touch point. And yeah, I definitely struggle with how not to appropriate, um, and, and to be respectful. Uh, and then I will say, how do you prioritize what traditions to study versus others? So I, I do think it is important to name that there. Are, there is definitely a bias towards certain traditions uh, I realized this I went to this uh, conference uh, the mystic soul project uh it's it has Christian roots but they 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 are very much like think of the flip side of what Richard Rohr is doing right now where he's thinking about like often he brings in other religious perspectives um but they are specifically doing it. From the from the black and brown world, like what are religious perspectives? And I realized when I was in that space that I felt really, I was like, is this okay to be doing? Should I be here? And I realized it was because certain traditions like Santeria or Voodoo are. Because they come from places that are black, tend to be viewed with deep suspicion versus like a tradition like Buddhism, right? So I, I want to name that. That is not to say like I'm not saying all tra- everything's valid. I'm not saying that, but I am just saying that absolutely I think that the little g little t great traditions there is definitely bias bias in how they're accessed and the respect with which they are received. Um yeah. All right, let's uh I do want us to have time to talk. Sorry. Gosh, Anthony I, we we're talkers, I guess. Uh, <laughs> so let's take seven minutes and then we can have some share time before we uh leave. So here are the questions that I want us to consider. Uh and I can maybe we maybe we can pop these in the chat. But uh just one, what great tradition positive positively informs your reading of the scriptures, little g, little t. How has it sharpened your engagement with and reading of the scriptures? Or what great tradition connected to your history might you need to engage? What comes up for you as you consider this? So I recognize that like many of us, and I'm in that this category at the beginning of thinking about this, so don't feel any pressure to have a full answer to this. And then the last question is just before you wrap up your conversation and breakout, just did anything else come up for you that, that was, you know, that you, that did, hasn't been discussed that you want to process with somebody for a couple minutes? Um, yeah. All right. So uh, and then can we do groups of two or three? Yeah.
0: Um, all right. Here come the breakout rooms. And then we'll give some warning when it's time to get back. Welcome back all.
1: All right. I know we have two minutes. Um Did anybody wanna share anything that feels particularly salient salient for the group? And I know people got cut off, sorry. (laughs) like, I know it always happens, so sorry about that. But did anybody wanna share for the good of the group just any reflections that came up on anything that happened today? Oh, this is a small group kind of talking group. Okay, (laughs) all right, Matt, go ahead.
3: Yeah, I, ju- um, I just want to share that it felt like um, we uh, really got the, the, the um, juices flowing toward the end of the conversation, and we we kind of left feeling like it would be great to have more time to, to talk about this stuff.
1: Yeah, so I'll say next week, uh, the plan is to get into kind of the opposite of this, which is like lenses that we do need to take off, and so I think we can start here. Um, and I just think we tend to give a lot more time to the lenses part, but I think we can start here and make sure that we finish, finish up this conversation well. Um, yeah, I appreciate that feedback. All right, I know this is probably a timely group. So I'll just say my final thought is just around the need to read scriptures in communities of diversity. I've said that a million times, but I think um, part of that, both the great tradition formed in community And our own readings have to be formed in that same way. And I see there's a resource that uh, Tua, I'm not sure. Hopefully I got that right. Did I get that right? Um, Has put here um, called Disability Faith in the Church. All right. I don't know, Anthony, if you want to wrap this up.
0: Yeah. um, Yeah. I encourage you uh, at the end of every class, I try to wrap up all of our notes into a document. So if you want to review anything or something went over your head, you want to look over it again, uh, uh, definitely look at those notes. uh, And then the podcast goes out, um, you know, Monday or Tuesday. So you can re-listen with some of like the gaps and silences, you know, cut out too. Uh, So it's a a pretty efficient re-listening experience if you're into it. Um, And yeah, looking ahead, uh, we've got a whole session on lenses. We've got a whole session on Christ-centered interpretation um so that's all coming and then it's in kind of the last half of this course that we're going to talk super practical you know tips and tricks sort of thing uh of how to do all this well so you don't you know all have to get master's degrees to crack open your Bible so uh with that let me pray a blessing over you all gracious good loving and kind God I pray that you would send out uh this class and this group uh with the an inspired sense uh, that you want to speak words of truth, freedom, liberation, and love to us all. May we trust that. Uh, and may we know that we are not alone in our desires to know you and to bring good into this world. And pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you, everybody. See you later.